and we're going to start reading in uh, verse number 38, the very last verse of Nehemiah chapter 9, and then we're going to read on through uh, the entirety of chapter 10. So, chapter 9, verse 38, because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Now, those who placed their seal on the document were, and I'm not going to read all those names. You see, Nehemiah the governor is the first one. I'll mention that one. Jump down to verse 9. You'll see that some of the Levites were involved. Um, verse number, actually, verse number 8, the end of it, there were priests involved. Then verse 9, Levites involved. Verse 10, their brethren. Verse number 14, the leaders of the people. And then we come down to verse number 28. After we skipped all those names, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated, separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the, of the Lord our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. We would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forgo the seventh year's produce in the exacting of every debt. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses at the appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord, to bring the first fruit of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites. For the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities, and the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine, and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much now for the opportunity to once again worship here with my brothers and sisters in this, your church. I pray today now that as we look at your word, as we return to our study in Nehemiah after uh, a period of absence here, I pray, Father, that you'd help there to be some continuity in our thinking. I pray we'd remember where we left off. I pray we'd remember the great revival that has taken place, the time that's been spent in the word and the tremendous impact it has had on people's lives and how they have determined now that they want to, to serve you. And I pray, Father, that uh, we'll see as, as we look at this covenant that they make with you, that, Father, you'll speak to our hearts today and help us to see how it applies to us. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. I pray that you'd help me to be clear in my teaching today, accurate, practical, most of all, Lord, right and biblical. I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, take control of this proceeding and guide us, direct us, May your will be done, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
The last couple of weeks we had the opportunity to, uh, to worship in a couple of other churches. Uh, two weeks ago we worshiped in a little tiny Bible church. I've actually forgotten what the name of that was called now. Parrot something valley. Pleasant Valley, there it is. Pleasant Valley Bible Church. And the reason we chose that particular church on that Lord's Day was because it was pastored by a village missions pastor. And we support village missions, and so we thought that would be interesting. And we had a nice time visiting a very small little group, and uh, it was an enjoyable time. And then last week, uh, we were actually back Saturday night, but we had already decided we wanted to uh, spend some time worshiping someplace else. Once in a while, we actually like to get preached at. And... Um, so we went and visited the House of the Lord in Akron, which was a, a very enjoyable and blessed uh, time for us. So we thank you again for all your prayers for us. But one of the things that's happened now is that we have been out of Nehemiah for a while, and uh, for a couple of reasons. One is because I've been gone for a couple of weeks, but also we had a couple of other uh, series in there that intruded. And so I hope that everybody remembers where we left off in Nehemiah. Uh, we left off with this tremendous revival that's taken place. We left off with them having read the Word of God uh, uh, for a protracted, pro- protracted period of time, and uh, it had a tremendous effect in their life. And now we come here in cha- the very last verse of chapter 9 and in, and in uh, all of chapter 10 to this time where still, still part of that event is taking place, but now they're actually they're going to... They're going to make this covenant, and they're going to create this covenant and sign this covenant, and it's all a result of that which has gone on before. So I hope everybody remembers that. You would think that after all of the time that I've had to think about this particular chapter, that it would have been easy, and I'd have had uh, no problem coming up with this. But uh, as I looked at these verses uh, throughout these last few weeks, I have struggled mightily with what God would have us to talk about from this passage. And I think one of the reasons, at least part of the reason, why I struggled so much is I couldn't get my mind around one particular word. And I think it's the key word in the whole thing. And that is that word covenant. Verse number 38, because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. I don't, it's not that I don't understand what a covenant is. I mean, a covenant is not anything particularly, uh, deep or difficult to figure out. A covenant has a simple definition as it, at its core. It's just an agreement, right? It's just a, Contract. It's just a, an agreement between parties. Uh, Webster defines it like this. It's a usually formal, solemn, and binding agreement or a compact. Or another, another definition is a written agreement of, or promise usually under seal between two or more parties, especially for the performance of some action. And so nothing magic about it. It's just an agreement. And yet I couldn't come up with what God wanted for us from this. Okay, so they had this covenant. That's interesting. And I struggled and struggled and struggled. I confess that sometimes I do struggle. Sometimes there'll be a sermon that'll just come right to you and you just, you just love those times. And then there's other times where it's just like pulling teeth and that's what this was. Until finally, out of desperation, I did something that I very seldom do. I read somebody else's sermon on this topic. I try not to do that, but I decided to do that this time out of desperation. And this person, rather than using the word covenant, he used the word commitment. And it was just like a light went bing in my mind. Because that, I don't believe we do any harm whatsoever to our text verse. And, and chapter 9, verse 38 is our text. If we use that word, because of all this, we make a sure commitment and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Now you might think there's no distinction there. And maybe it doesn't make any difference in your mind. But in mine, it made it suddenly clear. 
And I want you to think about it in this way for a moment. If I were to stand up here this morning and preach to you about that word covenant and how we make a covenant or talk about various aspects of the covenants of the Bible, I think probably most people in this room would nod their heads in agreement and say amen and it would be good stuff because that's a cool Bible word, isn't it? That's one of those words that we like. It's one of those ecclesiastical words or theological words that we like. But if I stand up here this morning now and start talking about commitment, I have this thought that it'll get a little quieter in here. It certainly has in my heart and mind, as I have thought about it, in that way. When I went from covenant to the word commitment, all of a sudden, it became extremely personal. All of a sudden, I began to understand uh, that this has something to say to me, which is where I was struggling with all along, is what does this passage have to say to me? What does it have to say to you? It's an interesting word, commitment. We don't like that word commitment, do we? There are people who don't want to get married today because they fear commitment, or at least they fear the obligation that that commitment brings. We see it in churches. People don't want to commit to things that will require anything of them. Some people don't want to become members for that kind of a thing. We are a world of people wanting to keep our options open at all times, and so commitment is something we don't see much of. I read about a fellow who went out and purchased a parrot. He thought it'd be fun to have a parrot. So he bought this beautiful parrot and brought it home. He hadn't had it home very long at all before he discovered that parrot had a somewhat fatal flaw. It swore terribly. And as he would listen to this parrot, he came to realize that this parrot could cuss for five minutes straight and not repeat the same word. He'd never heard anything like it in his life. And so he tried reasoning with the parrot. Come on now. Knock it off. Can you just clean up your language a little bit? And the parrot would just swear more and more and more. Finally, he got very upset with it one day, and he grabbed the parrot by the neck. The parrots have necks. He grabbed the parrot by the neck, and he shook the parrot, and he said, Now knock it off. I don't want to hear any more of this. And all I did was make the parrot mad. It just swore even more. So he got even more desperate, and he took the parrot, and he slammed it in the kitchen cabinet, and he slammed the door on it, and all he could hear in there was all this thrashing and banging and Enough stuff going on in there. So he finally took the parrot out, and the parrot just cussed a blue streak. Out of desperation, finally, the guy took the parrot, and he threw him in the freezer. Slammed the door on the parrot. All this thrashing around in the freezer, and then it got very, very quiet. So he sat there for a minute, and he thought, well, that'll fix him. And he sat there, and he thought for a minute, well, wait a minute now. It's awful quiet in here. Maybe, maybe he's hurt. Maybe he's froze. Maybe something's wrong. And so he opened the door of the freezer, and the parrot was standing there, and he held out his arm, and the parrot solemnly walked out onto his arm and looked at him and said, I solemnly swear that I will never again swear to you. I make a firm commitment that I will never again curse or swear. And can I just ask one question, the parrot said. What did the chicken do? You know, I'm convinced that many of us are like that bird. That's the only way we're going to commit to anything, is if we get to that point. We get to the point where there's no choice but to commit. But you see here in in Nehemiah chapter 10, these people made a commitment. And I I just want us to spend a few minutes this morning thinking about their commitment and uh, see if it applies to us. There's a lot of different things they committed to here. 
handle. We won't talk about all of them, but we're just going to kind of try to summarize it a little bit and move through it. I'd like to talk to you this morning about the reason they made a commitment, the people who made the commitment, and finally the, the, speci the specifics of what they committed to. The reason they made the commitment, that's our text, because of all this. We make a sure covenant, we make a sure commitment and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. The people in Nehemiah chapter 10 were probably absolutely no different than you and I. They probably shied away from commitment just like all of us do. They needed a reason in order to commit just like we tend to and maybe just like the parrot tended to. But they had a reason. And that's what it says right here. Because of all this, we make a commitment. That's their reason. Because of all this. And remember what they're talking about there. If you can, if you can remember back so far away when we, when we looked at chapter nine, but uh, remember what that was because of all that they had learned about God in their long Bible study. Because all that they have learned, He had done for them. That's what's all included in that because of all this. They had learned things about themselves. They had learned about their history of rebellion against Him. They had learned about His history of mercy and grace toward them. And because of all that, they said, we make a firm commitment. Warren Wiersbe says it like this. He said, God was good to his people when his people were not good to him. He sent them prophets to teach them and to warn them, but the nation refused to listen. He was merciful to forgive them when they cried out for help, and he was long-suffering with them as they repeatedly rebelled against his word. He could have destroyed the nation and started over again, but he graciously spared them. In his mercy, God didn't give them what they deserved, and in his grace, he gave them what they didn't deserve. And that's what they had learned, as they spent all that time. And now they said, because of all that, we make a commitment. It's sad, I think, and I, I, I'm including myself in all of these things that I discussed this morning. It's, it's sad how so many of us struggle to commit to serving God. We're willing to listen to his word. We're willing to acknowledge the Holy Spirit is speaking to us about the things of his, uh, 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 that he wants us to do. And yet so many of us just walk away without actually making a commitment to do what the Lord tells us to do. Wiersbe goes on. He says, it's one thing to offer the Lord a passionate prayer of confession such as we have in chapter 9 and quite something else to live an obedient life after we say, Amen. How many of us struggle with that very thing? But you see, the thing is, we like them have every reason to commit because of these things. Let that little phrase sink down into your mind. Every reason to commit to serving God. The songwriter said, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Is that not reason enough for us to commit to serving God? I was once a sinner, but I came pardoned to receive from my Lord. This was freely given. And I found that he always kept his word. Is that not reason enough for us to commit to serving God. Without him I could do nothing. Without him I'd surely fail. Without him I would be drifting like a ship without a sail. Without him I would be dying. Without him I'd be enslaved. Without him life would be worthless. But with Jesus, thank God I'm saved. How much more reason do we need? Because of these things, we have every reason to make a commitment to serve God. And if that's not reason enough, there's some promises to those who commit. God said in 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse number 9, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So the reason for their commitment, because of all this, we make a sure covenant, commitment and write it. Second thing I'd like you to see this morning is the people who made the commitment. The people who made the commitment. I don't need to spend a lot of time on this. It's pretty obvious here. This passage makes clear two, th two specific things about who made this commitment. Number one, it started with the leadership. And number two, it spread to everybody else. 
That's basically what we see as we go down through here. It started with the leaders. It included everybody. Who's the very first name on the list? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. It has been said, and we've used this quote multiple times because it applies so much in the book of Nehemiah, everything rises and falls on leadership. And Nehemiah demonstrates that so many times throughout uh, our study of the book that bears his name. His name was first on the list. When people won't commit to a thing, it is often because leaders won't commit to that thing. There's so much disillusionment in our country today about leaders. Perhaps you've noticed Perhaps you've experienced some of that. And I don't know about you, but I think, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say one of the reasons we get disillusioned with leadership in this country is because they don't stand for anything. All they stand for is what will get them the largest number of people to vote for them. Their morality, their belief system has no core. It's just driven by polls. But see, Nehemiah wasn't that kind of a guy. Nehemiah stood for something. Nehemiah believed, and Nehemiah was the very first one, the very first one who took the lead in signing this commitment. And then right behind him were the priests, and right behind them were the Levites, and right behind them were the leaders of the people, and the leaders of the households, all the leadership of all the people stood up and put their name on that document, taking the lead. It started with the leaders. I believe if we want a church that is committed to following and serving Jesus Christ, not just by nodding heads and saying amen, but by going out of this place and putting into practice the things that we read about in this book, it has to start with the leaders. And that means it has to start with me. And I confess to you freely this morning that I desperately covet your prayers in that matter. It has to start with the pastor. The pastor must stand and lead first. But then in our church, it has to go from there to the leadership team. Leadership team. You guys need to think about this. What are the implications of this to you? You need to consider, are you committed to being a leader in this place? And then the other group that I think is very important here, as I I would say, it's the fathers here this morning. The fathers. They talk about the leaders of the families. Fathers are the heads of their families. And I think here we see that they too must commit. If you want a family that follows the Lord, you have to take the lead. They have to first see it in you. So it started with the leaders. Started with Nehemiah, worked its way down through. And then when those who were in leadership positions, whether it was civil leadership like Nehemiah or ecclesiastical leadership or family leadership, when they took the lead in committing, others followed. Look at verse number 28 of chapter 10. After we've read all that long list of names of leaders, verse number 28, now the rest of the people. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and Ethanim, all those who had separated themselves from the people of the land for the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. And so when the leaders made the commitment, the people followed. So we've seen the reason for the commitment, the people of the commitment. Finally, would you notice with me the specifics of their commitment. And there's a lot of different things they committed to, as I mentioned a minute ago. We won't mention all of them. The first thing they committed to, kind of the summary thing, is there in verse number 25, 29, to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God. That's kind of the overall thing they committed to. We will walk in God's law. But then they gave some specifics, all of which explain what they meant by that. And let's just cherry pick a few of them. Let's just notice some of them. That they mentioned here. Look at verse number 30. They said, We will not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. 
We not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. They committed, I would suggest that means, to a separated life. A separated life. Now literally and specifically in their case, that meant that there would be no intermarriage outside of their faith. But I think in a general way, we could say they're talking about a separate life. You know, that requirement amongst Judaism to not intermarry outside of the faith, it, a lot of people would look at that and say that was a racist thing. That's Everything wants to be racist today. That's what everybody wants to talk about. But that had nothing to do with racism. It had everything to do about purity. In all of God's commandments about separation in the Bible, every place that you see him uh, talking uh, specifically like, like this about uh, uh, abstaining from intermarriage with the heathen, the emphasis was not on what they separated from. The emphasis was on what they separated themselves to. It was about keeping a pure people of God for God. One man said it like this, separation is simply total devotion to God no matter what the cost. When a man and woman get married, they separate themselves from all other possible mates and give themselves completely to each other. It is total commitment, motivated by love, and it is a balanced decision. We separate from others to the one who is to be our life's mate. And the Jews separated from the peoples around them and to the Lord and his word. And so separation. Now let me talk just for a moment this morning to those of us who are single. Was because I'm not single. But those of you who are single here this morning, because I, I, I think there's a very specific and obvious application here to you today. I, I think the same, the, the, the need there is a need for the same commitment today to not marry outside of the faith. I think the Bible is very very clear that Christians are not to do that. Second Corinthians chapter six says, "Do not be unequally yoked." together with unbelievers. That's what it's referring to. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And so, single Christians need to remember that they ought not to be selecting mates from those outside of the faith. And you want to know what is the simplest way to avoid that? You want to know the simplest way to make sure that you never marry somebody who's outside of the faith? Here it is, rocket science. Don't ever date somebody who is outside of the faith. If you just make sure that simple little rules in your life, you're probably never going to have to worry about it. Because you know what happens? You just never know what's going to happen when you go on a date. There is such a thing as love at first sight. Strange things can happen when you're sitting across the table from somebody. You're looking at somebody who might be lost, and at that point, you're not even thinking about that kind of thing. And you can find yourself going down a road that has no, not a very good end. And so don't, don't, don't fall for that. And don't fall for Satan's age-old con. Well, I'll use it as a means of evangelism. Don't, don't be one of those who listens to him whisper in your ear, well, I can win him to Christ. Or I can win her to Christ. Because it doesn't work that way. When you hear that, you ought to also be smelling sulfur. Because that's coming from the devil. When you hear that, you ought to also be hearing the hiss of Satan as he says those words. Because it's, it's the devil. It's never God saying that. The fact is, it's almost always the other way. Almost always the other way. It almost always results in the saved person being pulled away. Of course, the Bible tells us that. The Bible says in uh, Proverbs chapter 6, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And so there's a very specific application this morning. If you're here this morning, you're single. Uh, trust God. 
to provide somebody for you who is in the faith, don't, don't make the mistake uh, of going the other way. These people committed to living a separated life. And we need to do the same. In that respect that I've just described, but also in a more general respect, all of us need to commit to living a separated and holy life toward God. That was one thing. That was one of the specifics. Uh, look at verse number 31. Here's another one. They also committed to remember the Sabbath day. Verse number 31. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forgo the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every day. They committed to remember the Sabbath. You'll remember that the Jews were to set aside one day in seven. It was a holy day set aside specifically for God and dedicated to God. And yet the Old Testament history is filled with examples of them failing in that matter, is it not? Uh, prophets continuously mentioned it. Uh, Jeremiah mentioned it in Jeremiah chapter 17, Amos in Amos chapter 8, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 56, and again in Isaiah chapter 58, uh, prophets rebuking them for the fact that they were not keeping the Sabbath. When we get just a little bit further in our study of Nehemiah, we're going to discover that this great promise they made right here and this great commitment they made, they're going to fail on this particular area. And we're going to see Nehemiah have to battle again. And he's going to have to battle that very issue. Keeping the Sabbath. You know, some people believe today that the commandment to keep one day in seven is one that doesn't apply to us as Christians. And you'll hear sometimes said that, uh, you know, there's nine of the ten commandments that are repeated in the New Testament, but that one is not. You sometimes hear that said. You know, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Uh, I, I, I can't help but notice that Jesus observed one day in seven. He observed the Sabbath day. I can't help but notice that the early church, the very earliest church, met on the Sabbath day and then changed that day to the Lord's day, but still they honored one day in seven. And so though the very specifics of the Sabbath and the very specific things that had to relate uh, to, to the Jewish people specifically, I okay, fine, that's Old Testament, but... The concept, the principle that we would set aside one day to honor God, I don't see anything that tells me the New Testament does away with that. I think we need to do it. And I think 20, 21st century American Christians still need to honor one day in seven. Some people today would blame culture. They would say, well, you just can't do that nowadays. You know, people's jobs don't allow them to do that nowadays. And there's all kinds of reasons people will put up as why we cannot honor one day in seven. And the interesting thing is, I just read an article not very long about this very thing. It reminded me that, that, that we think that's something new. We think that's something they didn't face back then. As a matter of fact, in this very place, they're saying, when people come to us on the Sabbath day and want to sell us things, we're not going to deal with them. Business was transacted on the Sabbath day back then. It was the Jewish people who had to be willing to say, I'm willing to forego that. I'm willing to trust God in that area and honor God one day out of Sabbath. It's a, it's a matter of trust. It's a matter of difficulty. All of us, I think, need to commit to honoring one day in seven. And I would suggest to you this morning, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir here on this because you're here. And I thank the Lord for folks who are so faithful. I told Charlie I was going to pick on him this morning in the sermon. But, you know, I, I, whenever I think about this particular thing, I always think of the Eglies who are always in their place back there. Always. And since Charlie trusted Christ a couple years ago, I don't know, what you missed like two or three Sundays the whole time. I mean, they're just so faithful. And not only that, but so many in this place are faithful. And so I commend you for that. But we see here that they committed, and we need to do the same, to the Sabbath day. Or just to the principle of the Sabbath, setting aside one day for God. One other. 
Two others. Uh, verse number 32. They committed to give to support the Lord's work. Look at verse number 32. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offerings of the Sabbath, new moon, set feasts, holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement of Israel and all the work of the house of our God. Exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel. Now, there's a lot of detail in this covenant about giving. In that particular passage, they committed to give the temple tax. They also committed to work together to give needed supplies or wood for the temple service. I think that's verse number 34. Uh, and then they also committed to give a tithe, verse number 37, which is a tenth to the, God, to, uh, the service of God. And so there's a lot of specifics there that we could talk about. I, I just want us to think of it generally. Here's what they committed to do. They committed to give to support the Lord's work. That applies to us, does it not? We need to commit to this matter of giving. I've mentioned this before, but it, it bears repeating. I, I always remember a time when I hadn't been here very long, pastoring here with you, and I was, I was finishing up a sermon, and, and somebody, some uh, dear sainted person, I can't remember who it was now, uh, met me at the back door, and they were shaking my hand and saying, well, that was a wonderful message, preacher. You know, that always, that always makes you feel so good. And, and they said that to me, and then, uh, then they said, I, I want to I thank you for something. I said, what's that? And he said, I want to thank you that you never preach about giving. And I said, well, thank you. That's very nice. And I went home and repented. <laughs> because, you know, while I ought not to constantly preach about giving, I certainly ought to not never preach about giving because it's something that we need to be committed to as believers. It's something that's important. Jesus is the one who said, given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This past Lord's Day, I mentioned, we went to the house of the Lord. Bishop Josephus Johnson was the pastor. And uh, we just that was just a wonderful service. We just had such a great time. We walked out of there so blessed. But one of the things that, that I just loved that he did was the way he took the offering. And it might, you know, this is the kind of thing that would only impress a preacher, I don't know. But I just, I just love the way he took the offering. He stood up there, and he said, now, something similar to what we say. He said, now, we're going to take our offering, and uh, if you're visiting with us today, we don't want you to feel any pressure about giving to the offering. Because this is for the house of the Lord, so don't feel any pressure. But now, if you're a member here today, feel pressure. <laughs> and I just, I almost laughed out loud. But it's true, is it not? We ought to be a giving people. These people were committed to giving. It's simply a matter of trusting Christ. Anyway, it's all a matter of that. We'll trust God with our soul. We'll trust God with all of these aspects of our life, but we will not trust Him with our pocketbook. We will not trust Him to put food on our table. I thank God. Again, I'm preaching to the choir because we have a giving church. Even though I'm such a, a, a negligent pastor at preaching on this thing, nonetheless, our offerings continue to go on. Uh, all of these projects are done. We're running our new system this morning. Uh, the steeple is done. The, uh, the roof is done. Praise the Lord. And, and it's all because God's people have given. But I will say this. That we can do more. We can do more. If we give more, so many more people could be saved. So much more could be done for the cause of Christ. So we need to commit to giving. And then finally, the very last thing, kind of a summary statement. Verse number 39, the last verse. Verse number 39. Just look at the very last part of the verse. They say, we will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. 
That's kind of a summary. It summarizes everything they've already said. And it's interesting, I think, if, if, you, if you look back through there, you'll see that that phrase, the house of our God, was used about nine times throughout that whole long commitment or covenant that they made. The house of our God had a different meaning there than it does to us today. They were talking about the temple. They were talking about that building, that place where they met with God. They were talking about that building or that place where they would go and, and sacrifice and uh, receive atonement, the place where the Holy of Holies was. But you know, Jesus did away with the need for all that when he became the final sacrifice on the cross. We don't have to go to a house now to receive the atonement that took place on the cross. All we need to do now is accept that, and that is sufficient. And because Jesus did away with all of that, there's no need now. God doesn't dwell in some house like that. This is just a building. God dwells in us. The New Testament tells me that we are the temple of, of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. And so it would be tempting for me as a preacher to stand up here and say, look at that verse 39. We will not neglect the house of God and say that what it means we ought to take care of this place. But that's not what it means at all. It means we will not neglect our relationship with God. That was their covenant. That was their commitment. I have the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within me. I will not neglect that relationship. I think that was their summation of the whole thing. Uh, there's all kinds of details we could discuss in this passage. Obviously, it was a long passage. I'll let you read it on your own and think it through. But I think if you do that and if you prayerfully consider it, and especially if you use that word commitment in there instead of the word covenant, I think you'll come to the same conclusion that I came to as I studied it this past couple of weeks. And that is this. I need to renew some commitments. I need to renew some commitments because of all God has done for me. I need to renew some commitments. Because of those who look to me as a leader, I need to renew some commitments. Because there are areas where I'm not trusting God as much as I should, I need to renew some commitments. And so I ask you this morning, how about you, brother, sister? Do you need to renew some commitments today? Because of all this, because of all this, we make a sure covenant, a sure commitment. We write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it.